So we're continuing a sermon series that we started now a little while ago called Destroyer of the Gods. We're looking at the unique characteristics of the early Christian church in its first 300 years or so that caused it to become a movement of millions that took over the Roman Empire, all while their numbers were starting small and Christianity was illegal in the Roman Empire. So we're going to look at the second characteristic, unique characteristic of the church in its early first three centuries under the um, theme of Colossians 3. So I'd encourage you to turn in your Bibles there if you are using the Bibles we provided for you. This page 1167, 1167. And I will read it for us and put it on the screen for us as well. Encourage you to follow along with me there. Paul writes, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is in all, is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. This is God's word. So we're looking at the second of the unique characteristics of the early Christian church. Last week, we looked at um, the unique characteristic of Christianity as a new type of religion. Um, And if you didn't have the chance to join us for last week's worship, I would encourage you to go back and watch that sermon or listen to it on our podcast. You can find it on our YouTube channel or our website, um, because I think it sets the foundation for a lot of what we're going to talk about in the last three characteristics. Um, But the characteristic we're going to look at today is a new kind of identity. Um, Last week we said that in the Roman world, really everyone was okay with pretty, pretty much every religious expression. I mean, it didn't really matter what your gods were as long as your gods didn't say they were the greatest gods or the only gods or the most powerful gods or something like this. Basically, everybody could have their religious views as long as they kept it to themselves. But we said Christianity was different, right? Christianity was evangelistic for the idea that, that their god was supreme above all because he was embodied in the one man, Jesus Christ, who came, lived, died, and rose again to prove it. So uh, Rome didn't have a particular penchant for one religious view or another, but it was pretty typical that if you were religious in one way or another, that religion was tied to your ethnicity. So if you were Egyptian, you generally worshipped the Egyptian gods. If you were Ethiopian, you generally worshipped the Ethiopian gods. Um, That was pretty typical. And in a sense, it's still happening today. 
I think we see this maybe more so as a, a city that has a high number of immigrants, that we see that a certain ethnic group generally follows a certain religious practice. And how many of us can't say that we've seen somebody and said, now that man is probably Muslim, or that woman is probably Hindu. Right? In general, we associate a certain ethnicity with a certain religious practice. It's still pretty common in the world. And there's a reason for that. Um, every world religion besides Christianity is man-made. It's man-made, and therefore it comes out of a certain culture. And in general, a religion that's born out of a certain culture creates something of a feedback loop with its culture. So the way that this happens is a culture will have a certain set of moral or social values. The religion will be born out of that culture, and because it wants to work in that culture, it's not going to be too much different from that culture. Therefore, it's going to be easy for people of that culture to adhere to that religion, which reinforces the beliefs, which causes more of that behavior in society, which causes more people to join the religion, and you see how this works. And in fact, this has been the case for most world religions. It's no accident that you see certain people of certain ethnicities and assume that they are Muslim or Hindu or Buddhist or whatever the case may be. Um, I want to put a couple maps up here on the screen to show you this. This is a map of the density of um, Islamic uh, adherence across the world. So the darker the spot on the map is, the more of the population is Muslim. You can see, Islam basically centers in North Africa and the Middle East, right? which is where it was born. Here's a map of uh, Hinduism. Same idea, the darker the map is, the higher amount of adherence. You can see it's mostly India, particularly North India. Here's a map for Buddhism. Buddhism, of course, you can see, is in the Far East, particularly um, Far East Asia. Um, and again, this, these are the places where these religions were born. They create something of a feedback loop within their culture. But Christianity is different. Christianity is not man-made. It was not born in one culture. It was born of God. And therefore, if you were to look at the exact same map for Christianity, you would see that it is far more balanced and spread out. And what is also interesting about the spread of Christianity geographically is that the center of Christianity has moved over time. Christianity started in Jerusalem, but then the center moved to Greece, and then to Rome, to Europe, to North America, and now you can see that actually the center of Christianity in the global south, in Africa and in South America. And some of the places that actually look pretty light on the screen, places like China, are places where Christianity is growing rapidly. And most demographers say that will become the center of Christianity in the next 50 to 100 years. Now, why do I say all this? Um, first of all, I just want you to realize that Christianity is not a man-made religion, and therefore it doesn't fit into one cultural norm. It's from God, and therefore it's true, and therefore you should believe it. Um, but for our purposes today, what I want us to think about is the idea that uh, regardless of what culture we come from, regardless of where we live, we are going to live at tension with our culture. If you are following what Christianity teaches, you will necessarily live counterculturally. You will live in a, in a certain amount of tension with your culture's values. And I think that's hard for us to, to understand, especially if we've grown up, particularly in this nation, which at least for a while was considered by many to be a Christian nation, and especially if we've grown up in that Christian nation as Christians. It's sometimes hard for us to see the places where we are at tension with our culture. But we necessarily must be, 
And that's a challenge. Um, I listened to a video recently of uh, Nabil Qureshi. You've heard this name before. Nabil Qureshi was a Muslim who converted to Christianity. He said the hardest part about becoming a Christian was not the teachings, but the shifting of his culture. That he had to switch the things that he believed, that his culture believed, that his parents believed, his, his greater family believed. That was harder than actually adhering to the teachings of Christianity. And I think for us who claim to be Christians, that is actually also the case. That we're fine saying we're Christians, believing in Jesus, but the tough part for us is to change our culture and to stand in tension with our culture. Now, I'm not able to identify every single place where Christianity is in attention with its culture, but I think it would be good for all of us to meditate on that. I think it's easy to look at some of the big ones, the ones that get high press, the places where we maybe feel that Christian teaching is being attacked by fill-in-the-blank who, but actually, I think a lot of times the, the tension that we hold with our culture might be a lot more subtle. Now, again, I said I don't have time to outline those things, but I would, I would ask you to challenge yourself in this and think about it. Where are places where my culture thinks or acts or values something and I just go along with it rather than asking what does Jesus teach about this, right? For the early Christians, this was um, very obvious, a very obvious tension because in the Roman Empire, as a new kind of religion, they were living very differently from the people around them. And I don't want to spend so much time on exactly what that looked like. I more want to spend time on where did they get this new identity, this new idea of themselves, where they would talk about themselves using terms like uh, ecclesia, which is the, the Greek word that means church, which means a group of people who are called out, literally, from their culture, or talked about themselves as brothers and sisters, a new family, where our old family ties were not the same, those who are redeemed, in a sense, bought out of their culture. They use these terms to talk about themselves as this set-apart group. Where did they get that from? I think to get around this idea, we first need to realize where any of us get our identity from. Are there any number of things that you use to identify yourself, to, to decide who you are as a person? There may be things like your sex, right? Male or female, or where you are in your family, father, mother, sister, brother. Your occupation, like specifically where you fall in the business. I'm a CEO, or I'm a manager, or I'm customer service, or I'm tech. Your relationships, I'm a friend to these people. Or maybe your ethnicity, I'm Jamaican or German or Portuguese or whatever. Or your station of life, I'm, I'm a child or a teenager or a young adult, middle-aged, elderly. We have all these things that we identify with. They may even be things that we accomplish, right? I'm the person who does this or has done this in my life. There are any number of things that we identify with. And in each of those identity markers, there is a certain set of assumptions about how that type of person should operate, Right, so in our culture, men should be like what? Women should be like what? Older people generally are like this. Younger people are generally like this. People who have higher socioeconomic status are like this. We usually call these things stereotypes, but they still hold a lot of power over many of our lives. They help us make our decisions. Well, I'm the type of person who would do this or the type of person who would do that. I'm the type of person who would spend my money here or the type of person who would spend my money there. What, what Christianity uniquely says to us and to those early Christians is that these identity markers are secondary. 
The way that Paul says it in the text for us is like this. He says, here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Another place that says essentially the same idea, Galatians 3, this verse is probably a little bit more famous, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, there is nor, uh, neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. What Paul says very clearly is whatever is your identity in your life, whatever you mark your identity by, that comes second to your identity of being in Christ, your identity of being in Christ. Whatever it is that you identify with, male, female, old, young, black, white, rich, poor, educated, undereducated, successful, failure, whatever it is, that comes second to in Christ. You are a completely new person, Identity that doesn't show up on your driver's license or your passport or your birth certificate. You are new. You're in Christ. We said our theme for this year is a life lived in Christ. And we said those words, in Christ, mean two things. First of all, that our status is completely tied up in who Jesus is and what Jesus has done. That when God looks at us, he sees the perfection of Jesus, not our imperfection. But that also means then that we live out a life as Christ's hands and feet and mouth on this earth, as part of his body for the sake of continuing the ministry he started here on earth. And so Paul says you have to view yourself as in Christ. There are so many things that are, that are outside of you that will try to take your identity and say, be this or else. But Jesus says, no, you're in Christ. And that sets you on a completely different trajectory. Now, Paul starts to work out some of the implications of what this means. Um, In the verses right before verse 11 of the text, he says, Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature. He says your, your new identity is the one you are living now. So put to death everything that belongs to the old identity. And he lists off a whole bunch of things, right? Sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed. Um, He also then lists anger, rage, malice, and slander, filthy language from your lips. He talks about deceit, right? Lying to one another because you've taken off the old self with its practices and been given this new self that is being renewed in the knowledge and image of its creator. He says this new self that you are living needs to kill the old self that existed before, Now, again, we can't work through all the implications, but just for the sake of getting us started, let's think through a couple of these. If you were to think of yourself typically through the lens of what the culture expects or sort of obligates men to be, for example, you guys, how would you live your life? The culture generally expects that men are not going to value things like fatherhood or responsibility. They're generally going to let the women take care of it that they're not going to see themselves as valuable. They will often self-deprecate. They will look for any means to play with their life rather than to take responsibility for their life. It's generally what the culture says to men. But that's not you. When you were baptized, that old self died. And now you're in Christ. And you're called to be responsible for your life, for your money, for your family. To see fatherhood as something that's worth aspiring to and taking time to do well at. Seeing your church or your family as something that you are the head of for its good. That you are not here to serve yourself or your desires, 
with the desires and needs of others? What about if, if you're a woman? What does the culture generally say to women? You need to pull it off. All of it. You need to be responsible for your family, of course, and raise your kids well, but also have a job. Make sure that you look Instagram pretty and do it all. And, and you need to find your value both in what you do and how you look. And you're probably tempted to demean anyone who gets in your way, especially men. But that's not who you are. You were baptized into a new self. So put that to death. You were called to see your home and your family as a beautiful thing to love and invest in, to make into a sanctuary for the sake of God's word, to love your husband and respect your husband and to serve him for his good, to not see life as something that consists in the abundance of possessions, but in true wealth. I heard this recently. Um, this is from not a Christian, actually, but um, I can't remember his name, but the quote is, uh, money and status are zero-sum games. In order to get some, you need to take it from somebody else. But true wealth exists in people. Because in order to love somebody, I don't have to take anything from anybody else. Very often, I think our culture presses particularly women to try to find their value in money or status. Things that are zero-sum games that require you to take from others. Rather than in true wealth, which is in the love of people. Your family particularly. But then your neighborhood, your church. What about, uh, let's take it out of the realm of sex for a moment and let's talk about age. If you're a young person, what does your culture generally expect you to do? Well, probably to do what you want because you only live once. Particularly with your body because your body seems indestructible at this point. To use that body, maybe particularly for sexual things that God has called you away from. And if life doesn't go well, to make sure you blame it on the boomers, because they're the ones who ruined it for you anyways. But that's not who you are. You were called out of that. So put that to death. You were baptized into a new self, a body that was redeemed by Jesus, not to be used for your own pleasure, but to be used for the service of others. And even if you live a life that's at a lower economic status than those who have gone before you, you're called to be thankful for the gifts that God gives you. The fact that God lets you live, the fact that God gives you food, the fact that God gives you more than most people on earth, frankly, if you live in this country. What if you're old? What does the culture generally expect of you? Maybe that you take it easy. I mean, frankly, you've been living your life for the sake of other people for most of it. It's time for you to retire and take some time for yourself. And use all that wealth that you've built up to enjoy life. Maybe that includes complaining about all the things that are wrong in the world or taking a few too many drinks because, honestly, you don't have to go to work tomorrow. So why does it matter? But you were called out of that. You put that to death. You were called to a new self where God has given you wealth and, and experience to be used for the sake of others and a body and a mind that aren't dead yet, which means God still wants to use them. So take care of them. And to see life as something that isn't worth complaining about because, frankly, Jesus is going to redeem it anyway. It's worth working for with the same heart of love that Jesus has for it. 
Of course, we could work through all sorts of identity markers and, and different things like this, but do you see how this starts to play out? When you start to see yourself in Christ, it puts you in a tension with the culture around you, this new identity that you have. Now, where do we get the, the motivation for this kind of living? Well, Paul gives it to us in the text. Right at the beginning of Colossians 3, he says, Since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts on things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So, so Paul says two things, two motivations for living this new identity at odds with our culture. He says, first of all, you died. You died. Romans 6 says that in your baptism, you were baptized with Jesus into his death. It is as if your body was strung up on the cross about 2,000 years ago, but you didn't have to go through it or experience it because you're in Christ, and Christ did it for you. But that means that your old life is effectively over. When I was at my parents' house over my vacation, um, my parents tried to show me the show Ghosts on TV. Maybe some of you have seen this show. The idea of the show, if you haven't watched it, is uh, there's a couple who live in this old house, and the wife of the couple, she can see the ghosts that exist in the house, and she can interact with them while the husband can't. Um, and she needs to do all sorts of things for these ghosts because, well, they're ghosts. And so they sometimes like, want to watch TV, and so she has to leave the TV on when they leave the house and things like this. And it's, it's sort of a funny show, but it helps us illustrate this idea that if you're dead, then, then your life and your ability to accomplish anything in life is over. Right? You don't ask Mrs. Jones to get up off the gurney to get you a cup of coffee because she's dead. Well, God says you died. Which means that all the things that you live for, all the things you strive for in this life, they really don't matter. They don't actually affect anything long term. And you know this logically. Right? Your health can be taken away in a moment. Your family could be taken away in a moment. Your wealth could be taken away in a moment. Your peace or your prosperity or your prospects for the life that you were hoping you were going to live for the next 10 years can be taken away in a moment. None of it is actually dependent on you. Now, that doesn't mean you shouldn't work for it, and we'll talk about that a little bit later, but at first you have to have this idea that all these things in this life I have died to. The second thing he then says is that because of this, we should set our minds on things above, not on earthly things. Now, what are these things above that we are supposed to set our mind on? Well, the text tells us in the very first verse, it says, the things above is where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. If you think about that, that fact that, that Jesus is still king, that Jesus is still on his throne, and that all the things that he has promised to you about the life that is eternal after this passing away life are true, then it will completely change the way you think about the things that are going on in this life. If I have all the riches of heaven, why do I need these things here? If I have all the status of completely loved and acclaimed and acknowledged, redeemed child of God in heaven, why do I need status here? If, if, if God is going to give me a seat at the royal table for eternity, why do I need to gain status or, or an education to be somebody of any sort of value here? I don't need to do any of those things. Again, that doesn't mean you don't do them, but you don't need them. You are free because you died to these things. 
You have a new identity that allows you to see that the things that are eternal, those are the things that matter. Or as Jesus said it when he was speaking with that man who asked him to divide his inheritance with him and his brother, he said, this is what will happen to those who care too much about what's going on in this life and are not rich towards God. So a new identity. It worked out for the early Christians in this way. They were able to set themselves apart as a group of people who were working for a different trajectory, a different goal than the rest of society. And like we said, it's not that they detached from culture. They were still part of culture, but they were living, seeing themselves completely differently in Christ. So I encourage you to, first of all, die to your old life. Not just to die to the old things that you used to value, but to die to the sin that you've committed and the sin that continues to claw at you. Those things are not you. You were baptized out of those things. And you can live your life completely free from that guilt and that responsibility in love and service to your neighbor for the sake of the gospel. Or as I said, we're going to ask it multiple times during this year in this worship, this question, what would Jesus do if he were you? What would Jesus do if he were you? Of course, Jesus is not necessarily you, and yet Jesus lives in you, right? He says that you and all the things that are true about you, all those identity markers that we said are secondary to your identity in Jesus, you are the person he wants to use to accomplish his good purpose. And that means that whether you're male or female or old or young or rich or poor or successful or unsuccessful or educated or undereducated, that God wants to use that. And Jesus wants to work through that. So while you see your identity primarily in Jesus, you also see that God has made you the way that he has made you for the sake of using you. So ask yourself, what would Jesus do if he were you? What would Jesus do if he were single? And there weren't that many people who were solid Christians to marry. What would Jesus do if he were the parent to your children? What would Jesus do if he were a member of this church? What would Jesus do if he worked at your job? What would Jesus do if he lived in your neighborhood? What would Jesus do if he had the kind of wealth you have? Or if he had the lack of wealth that you have? What would Jesus do if he was a victim? What would Jesus do if he knew those who had been victimized? How would Jesus treat the Canadian government? How would Jesus interact with the news or Facebook or Twitter? What would Jesus do if he were you? Because the truth is, he is. Like Paul says, he is in all, and that includes you. So let's meditate on these words one more time. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Your life is hidden away in Christ, in heaven, at the right hand of the throne of God, in Christ, right? That means that that what you care about, what you're living for, what you, you dream about, that's not here. That's there. This became very obvious to me as I was in the States for three weeks before uh, yesterday. My life is not there. And as much as I love the people who live there, and I love many of the experiences I can have there, and I love the United States of America, my life is here. This is my life. Being with you is my life. 
And I couldn't help myself as I went through all those things in the States, continually thinking about you and this church and this community, because this is my life. What if we thought about heaven that same way? Yes, we're here, but that's our life. Yes, we're here and there are things we love and there are people we love, but our life is stored somewhere else. And when that life appears, Jesus himself, then we will go to that life that is truly life that we've always craved, where all these things that we spend our life and our time and our money and our energy on don't matter anymore. So set your minds on things above, not on earthly things, because you have a new identity. You're in Christ, given his righteousness and called to live like him in the world. May God grant that we do that, that we cre- he creates a community among us that lives like those early Christians with this new identity. Let's pray for it now. God, you have baptized us into your death and have raised us to life with you in Jesus. We ask that you would press that identity of in Christ into all of us so that we, like your Christians of 1,700 to 2,000 years ago, can be a light in this dark world, a group of people who are living differently than everyone else. And may we use that new identity, that lack of fear of losing money or reputation or status or future or prosperity. Let us use that identity to bring others into it. For you have died for all and you want to live in all. We ask your blessing on it and that our actions be done to your glory. Amen.